0: Welcome to the Black Girls Raised in the South podcast, a podcast dedicated to elevating the voices and centering the lived experiences of Black women raised in the South. Our goal is to inspire, motivate, and encourage all women to thrive. I'm your host, Taffany English, a.k.a. The motivator, and I am a black girl raised in the South. Welcome to another episode of Black Girls Raised in the South. Today, our guest is Katherine Coleman Flowers. Katherine grew up in Lowndes County, Alabama. She's an environmental health advocate and recently named a MacArthur Fellow for the Class of 2020. She's bringing attention to failing water and waste sanitation infrastructure in rural areas and its role in perpetuating health and socioeconomic disparities. Today, Catherine talks to us about her upbringing in Lowndes County and the impact that the Black Power movement had on what she's doing today. Welcome, Catherine. I'm so glad to have you here with us. I'm so glad you had an opportunity to record this episode with me. I'm, I'm just eager for the audience to learn more about your upbringing in Lowndes County, the impact that the Black Power Movement had on what you're doing today it was so good catching up with you, um, prior to hitting record for this episode. And just for our listening audience, Catherine and I are both members of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. We're actually line sisters and our circles, um, have intertwined throughout the years, you know, with our work. Um, she's also worked with EJI and Brian Stevenson. And so, um, it, it was just so good to catch up with you and to hear more about some of the exciting things that you have. And I can't wait for our audience to hear more about that. But to get us started, I want you to share with the audience um, who you are, um, where you're from, and and just anything that you want to share about your upbringing. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, well.
1: Um... I'm I'm basically, you know, I tell everybody I'm a country girl. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama, and I'm proud of it. Proud of, uh, you know, the fact that I grew up walking places, Um, being able to walk to the store, which was more than a mile away, um, a little country store that was owned by relatives, or walking through cornfields and picking plums off trees or apples and eating them. Um, just having those kinds of experiences, I think have made me closer to to the earth and have mm-hmm. respect for the environment, but also um growing up in a community of people that shared a connection and a love for social justice. uh Lowndes County was very, very involved in the civil rights movement. uh I used to hear people tell stories of going to meetings. And what it was like for them to organize people like Ms. Shook, uh, who was one of our uh, neighbors who had nine children. We spent a lot of time in her house with her kids, but she also was a griot of her time. She didn't realize that that I would be listening when they would tell the stories about organizing how the Social and Savings Clubs organized as part of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization and getting uh, people registered to vote and actually showing up and voting in that uh, now historic election, so there were numerous people like Ms. Shug, who uh, who taught me, I think, a lot uh, as I was growing up. ahead had an impact. My, of course, my parents, my mother, uh, people like Donna Smith, who was a Donna Smith was a student at Alabama State University, involved with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who became a lifelong mentor of mine until her death. Uh, there were people that I've met along the way, like Sophia Bracy Harris, who whose own family was involved in desegregating schools here in Alabama. Uh, but I met Sof- Sophia when I was still a, a, a student at um, Central High School in Lowndes County. At the time, it was Lowndes County Training School, but the name was changed. Uh, so there were numerous, numerous people along the way, numerous women in particular. That contributed to me uh, working the way I work today and being the person that I am today.
0: Clowns County, definitely the epicenter of the civil rights movement, and we know in the South, you know, our roots run deep. Being involved in the movement, and you and you mentioned um, Central High School. You were instrumental in changing that school's name is what I've learned as well. So (laughs) activism isn't far removed from you. It seems like you've been doing that most of your life.
1: It seems that way. I think that uh, when I was 10 years old, all of a sudden I became aware of the world around me. And I started first writing poetry and and trying to write about, write it from the perspective of a 10 year old what I wanted the world to be because, you know, there was some traumatic things that happened when I was growing up. You know, one was the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, We were actually in Birmingham in 1963 when the church was bombed and those little girls were were killed. That had a a real serious impact on me, more than I realized. And then later, of course, um, the assassination of Dr. King and the assassination of Robert Kennedy, those were all... um, impactful moments for me. And I became a Robert Kennedy Youth Fellow because of my activism around um, what was happening at, at then Lowndes County Training School. And I went to Washington the summer of 1975. And my job, my my role there was to learn how, how Washington, how Capitol Hill functioned. And uh, I went as a Robert Kennedy Youth Fellow. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, and when I went to meet him, the first thing he started asking me about was, he started asking me about Lowndes County. He started asking me about, um, you know, the, the 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 work that I was doing to organize in Lowndes County uh, around the right to a quality education, but also um, he asked me about the name of my school, and he said to me, and I told him the name and he said, Do you know that outside of the South, training schools denote the name uh a school for delinquents? And I was like, What? I didn't know that. So hmm. um I didn't want that to be on my diploma. And, <laughs> and I didn't even realize that I didn't even you know I was a kid that grew up that wanted to be Barbara Jordan. I wanted to be, you know, like Barbara Jordan and I thought yes. I'd be the first black woman on the on the on the US Supreme Court. That's what I was hoping. That was part of my dream at the time I was younger. So so I was like, no, this this in my mind, I'm thinking I'm not going to let this stop me from going to school. <laughs> so I went back. I talked to my parents and I went back. We went to the very first board meeting and we raised the issue of changing the name of the school. At that very first board meeting, Holder uh, Coleman walked out of that meeting. Holder Coleman was the superintendent of schools. Holder Coleman's brother, Tom Coleman, had killed Jonathan Daniels and was acquitted in Lowndes County. So, you know, I didn't know any of this history when I was, <laughs> I was just going through the motions like a Forrest gump, right? So I didn't uh-huh. know, I didn't know any of this history. But she walked out, and I remember this other person who was on the board who was white said, You should, you should love having the scope name for uh, he said, William Yancey Lowndes who I, I have since found out was a slave owner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, but anyway, not knowing any of that, it led to us uh, changing the name of the school. And when I graduated from high school, the class of 1976 gift to the school was the name that we had put up on the school to replace it. And all my diploma was Central High School.
0: Well, I know your fellow classmates in the community of Lowndes County expressed their gratitude and I'll express my gratitude for you at that time when you were just a high school student, um, you know, found out information, knew that that's not something that you wanted to have as a part of your legacy. And you went back to the community and said, okay, we need to change this and you implemented strategy and you got it done. So thank you for that. And thank you for being a role model and an, influence to someone who's listening to this podcast right now, who may be, you know, thinking about ways that they can affect change within their own communities. And, you know, you really touched on something that we are actually seeing happening Today, which is this conversation around Confederate monuments and predominantly black schools being named after Confederate generals and how students are taking the lead and elevating and ensuring that their voices are heard to effect change. And we know that several monuments have been coming down um You know, and they don't need to be on public properties. They don't need to be on our schools, but they need to be in their rightful place because, yes, they are a part of history. But those names on schools and um, the Confederate monuments and public places was a direct response. We know you and I know that um, it was a direct response to what was happening with the civil rights movement. And so it wasn't about the Civil War. And I think we need to make sure that we bring that into context. And, and, you know, while we're here, let's just shift the conversation a, a little bit. You know, racism and race and race relations is at the forefront of almost everything that we're hearing and seeing and experiencing within our communities. And we know that um, the civil rights movement, while it changed a lot, it did not um, change systemic racism, institutionalized racism. And so let's shift the conversation a little bit. And And I want you to share with our audience um, your perspectives on where we are um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with movements that we're seeing happening not only here in the South, but in other parts of the country, and how that directly impacts not only Black people, but how does that affect communities at large?
1: Well, well, that's a good question. You know, one of the things that I've been doing more of, you know, a lot of us are guilty of censoring ourselves when we've been in situations where people have have either had, uh, you know, microaggressions as it relates to racism or they've said things and we just, you know, we, we're so accustomed to it, we just ignore it and move on. I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says something that that is racist you know, I stop and I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not um, I try to have a conversation with them that help them not understand what they said, because sometimes people say it so quick, just let it pass by. I don't do that anymore. I think it's also important for people to learn the history. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been doing is suggesting to everybody that if you have not gone to the the National uh, Memorial to Peace and Justice, go and visit so you can learn the history and, uh, and understand why some of these names are offensive. And to understand why white supremacy is something that we should be concerned about. When I was growing up, people would uh, often say the excuse was, don't blame me for slavery. I didn't own slaves. Or, and then, of course, the narrative shifted and it changed and became, well, the Confederate flag had nothing to do with slavery. But now, you know, we see that, that that's being turned on on its head. And we see that there are so many monuments to a legacy that has been rewritten because it's not the truth. And the fact is that that a lot of um, it has been romanticized and made. And you would think in the South that the South won the war when the South actually lost the war. And then we lose we lose uh, the story of Reconstruction and what happened then. And a lot of people don't even know the black elected officials that were elected at that time they don't know their names black nor white people know who they are and and that it that shows you uh how systemic racism has evolved in this country to actually rewrite history to support a narrative that that marginalizes other people whether it's people of color or even women in a lot of cases so mm-hmm. we we have to be um I think at this moment, at this juncture, this is time to have these honest discussions, and I think that we have to talk about how we decolonize, or, uh, or how we also deal with uh, deal with racism for what it is and call it out for what it is, and at the same time help people transition. I think we have to have truth and reconciliation. If we don't tell the truth, we'll never reconcile it because we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I think that that's the best way to move uh, toward that that place. And I think starting to getting some of the materials from EJI would be extremely helpful. Going to the website, learning as much as possible, and also really getting to know the own local history. You know, a lot of people think that they're excused because they're going to look at the South and say, oh, it only happened in the South. Oh, no, that's not true. <laughs> it's right. happening everywhere. I'm sure every state in the United States has a story and we all need to know what those stories are so we can work on changing it. Then we can understand what's happening. why we have a Black Lives Matter movement, the reason why police officers in, a lot, in some cases feel like they can marginalize or use implicit bias toward people of color. It didn't just start. It's something that, that goes back uh, a long, long way in history. And until we have this kind of truth telling to deal with it, we're never gonna get past, as I said earlier when you and I were talking, that this has been like a boil that's been on our face for a long time and now it's coming to a head. We gotta mm-hmm. get past that and go on and and, and 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 heal and we'll do that with the truth telling.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Our country is in desperate need of healing. We know that racism is rooted in this false belief in a human hierarchy, and we know that it has fueled um, systemic racism. And we also know that this whole notion or this false ideology that fuels the white supremacist movement or other um, overt expressions of racial um, racial hatred that you mentioned, it it has just fueled um, a hatred that is just steeped in the fabric of of our of our culture and it is time for us to change that so thank you so much for reminding of us of that and speaking of healing you often say when the earth is ill so are its people and we know that you are on a mission to heal the environment and you're doing that through the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice talk with the audience about the work that you're doing, and also um, share with us ways in which we can get involved or um, raising our own awareness around environmental justice issues in the South.
1: First of all, uh, it's important to me because, you know, when we first moved to Lyons County, we lived in a house that had an outhouse, uh, and we had to have other ways to to deal with waste. Uh, And anybody that grew up in the country at a certain period of time, you know, before they had indoor plumbing, understands that it was it was a struggle. But we had to, you know, deal with it. Uh, for people that had lived there all the time, that's what they knew. And we moved there uh, from Montgomery, uh, where we had indoor plumbing, and then had to go to a setting where we had where we not only didn't have indoor plumbing, there were no telephones. I remember we even got telephones in Lowndes County, um, so it was. Um, It was it was very, 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 very different kind of experience. Um, So later on, when I came back home and I was trying to do economic development, I found out about the need for infrastructure and the lack thereof. And and the attitudes and some of the things that people had the nerve to say to me about Lowndes County in my face was Mm. really um, was what motivated me. To, to push past that because I realized that a lot of it wasn't implicit bias. They were obviously biased against Lowndes County and other rural communities. And, and people would actually say that. And a lot of the policy was written that way to reinforce it. And I was very concerned about that, uh, that people did not have access to wastewater. And when I found out that in Lowndes County, people were being arrested because they could not afford on-site sanitation, and what I was told was because people did not, they chose not to purchase it, but that was not, it was more complicated than that. And we've even found where people, there are either people that are straight piping, which means they flush the toilet, it goes out on top of the ground, or there are people that are actually paying a wastewater fee in some of these small towns. And But the wastewater treatment facilities that they have, they're not working properly, and it's still it's backing up into people's homes. So we are, uh, at this point, not only lifting the veil on this so that uh, the nation will see what's happening, not just in Lowndes County. This is a problem in all 67 counties in in in, in Alabama. But I'm finding out it's prevalent, not just in the South, it's prevalent throughout uh, the United States. And people are reaching out to me and letting me know about problems in these other areas as well. So we're hoping that at this particular point, uh, not only to document where these places are, but also to start working on technologies when When the Gates Foundation did a noble thing, which was to to fund a search for technologies to deal with you know to redesign the toilet, they were thinking about places in other parts of the world they were thinking about the developing world they weren't thinking about the United States because the the funding was not to to support these kinds of issues in the u s and one of the things that we've been able to do through our work. Is now to help uh, the philanthropists understand that they need to direct this toward helping in the U.S. So this is also a U.S. problem. So we are working on policy solutions. Uh, Cory Booker's office uh, has just sponsored some some uh, legislation to help, and we're also looking at um, we're looking at looking at 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 trying to to engage. Uh, people that are interested in in social impact investing into helping us to find new solutions. We want to create a toilet that when you flush it, clean water comes out. And now with COVID, what it has exposed is that uh, wastewater sheds COVID. Mm. So we have to wonder... Is it, could that be one of the reasons why people in Lyons, besides the fact that they're poor and they're working essential jobs, et cetera, but also because some people are exposed to wastewater does that, uh, or raw sewage, does that make them more vulnerable to getting COVID? So uh, actually, one person, one expert I talked to said that they can tell at least at least eight days out before people start showing up to get tested, before they start having symptoms, where COVID is showing up in areas by testing the wastewater. Wow. So we're 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 gonna be announcing at some point, hopefully I come back on your show to announce this new initiative that we're working on to, to actually work on this technology. And the difference in the paradigm that we want to do, the shift that we have in the paradigm is that we wanna have people sitting at the table, like the folk who told me the the truth about what was happening in wastewater. I had to listen to them. If I had listened to just the people that were trained in the universities who had never lived in these communities, I would have a different perspective that was wrong. So this way, I think that well the best way for us to come up with solutions or to have the people from the community sitting at the table when it's designed, that it won't be a top down approach, that we'll be using
0: Absolutely. I believe the quote is nothing about us without us. And so it is so important that we have everyone at the table and that we engage across communities to address several of these issues that are um, critical in our communities. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, you have some exciting news. You have a book Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. This is a memoir, and it's publishing in November. Why don't you share with the audience this exciting news? The
1: book book really, it's almost like it tells my story, of because a lot of people don't see the connection between civil rights, environmental justice, and social justice, and racial justice. They don't see all these connections. But this book, in reading the book, people will see the connections because it was a natural evolution. Because when folk think about environmentalists, they usually think about a white person.
0: Uh-huh. They
1: don't think and they certainly don't think about a black woman. So uh but they but for those of us that grew up in the country, we grew up being environmentalists because we had to live with Mother Earth in order to be able to survive. You know, people that had back when I was growing up, people were growing their own food. Everybody yes. had a garden. So you had to pay attention to the elements. You had to pay attention to the climate. What was going on? When to plant those seeds? When mm-hmm. you to harvest your crops? You mm-hmm. so know, my parents would tell, "Don't eat those green plums. You got to wait until they're ripe." You know, just things like that that would happen, or, or when the. Um, for me, I was just one of those kids that was attracted to corn and would always <laughs> walk through the cornfield for some reason. But that was, but one of the things I learned about corn is that. I, if I open, you know, if I was to shell it, shuck it, as we called it, you know, put mm-hmm. the, the covering on the corn and you put your sink your teeth into the corn. It was a natural milk that came out that tastes a certain way. Oh, it's so yes. very different from what they're selling as corn now. <laughs> so yeah. so I'm, I'm glad that people are getting back to gardening because that was just people. I think a lot of people, especially like my parents, were were uh, children of the of the Depression era. Uh So they, people were more, um, the things that people now call, you know, they said their conservation is their environmentalist because they're doing things this way. They're not throwing everything away. My mother saved everything, every pie pan, every glass, you know, that, that, that jelly glass was repurposed. And that was your water glass. That was your water glass, your tea glass, your (laughs) lemonade. So now things are involved because other people are doing them, but we did them out of necessity. Yeah. And had to do them. And so I I think that that we are changing the narrative, so to speak, and expanding it so folk can see that this is just part of who we are and part of our culture as well. And and that we need to take our rightful place. So my book tells all those stories, but it also, I think, will shed light on it. Is it will shed light on those of us that have grown up in these rural communities, especially in the south. But it also shows that we were not helpless and that we took our own power, you know, even then when it was hard to do. And it may give hope for people living right now who think that things are hopeless because it's not.
0: I can't wait to get my hands on the book. I know that it will offer inspiration and hope to many. And least, like you said, it is not, all hope is not lost. I can't wait for our next episode, which will be part two of our conversation. There's so much wisdom um, to glean from with regard to your experience and the knowledge that you have to share with the audience. So I can't wait until the audience can hear part two. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Black Girls Raised in the South podcast. I'm your host, Taffany English. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Black Girls Raised in the South.